up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to the first episode of 2022, episode 37 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, you'll be hearing from Brian, better known as Goat Organics, based out of Washington State. He talks to us about the early days of solventless in Washington, including the adopting of the star system, as well as his former company, Turbco, one of the earlier solventless only companies in the Washington rec market, and his experiences at the Greener Today, including finding their own award-winning genetics, including one of my favorites, the Ghost Train Haze. So definitely stay tuned for that. Shout out to all the people who support us through the community on Patreon. It allows us to continue producing episodes. We're incredibly thankful for all of you. We're excited to be releasing our art print for our 2021 guests, which has become a yearly custom now, something that you can only get by being part of our community on Patreon. So if you ever want to support the podcast, grab a few stickers or listen to additional interviews, check out our Patreon at patreon.com backslash the hashish in it's the hashish inn or you can use a link via our instagram page we want to welcome our newest sponsor rocky mountain high 719 seed bank who you can visit at rocky mountain high 719.org they're a seed bank that focuses on carrying breeders that they can stand behind because they're growers at heart and they grow all the gear that they sell. So whether you're looking for the newest lines from Bloom Seed Co, AKA Harry Palms, like their Flam Banger collab with Boston Roots Seed Co, or the newest in-house genetic drop in a week, you can find it all at rockymountainhigh719.org. And to start the year off right, Rocky is hooking up the Hashishian listeners with a 25% savings on your entire order by using our savings code, the letters THI. Again, THI saves you 25% on your entire order at RockyMountainHigh719.org. And if you're in Oklahoma, check out Rocky's collab with Ginger Larf and their newest rosin drop coming to a dispensary near you. A shout out to our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com. Whether you're washing hash or you're pressing rosin, you can find everything that you need at rosinevolution.com, including reasonable prices on high quality gear, as well as the best customer service in the industry, trusted by some of the top hash makers in the world. If you value reliability, consistency, and peace of mind, then visit rosinevolution.com or their Instagram at rosinevolution100 for all your rosin needs and use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710. It saves you 5% on your entire rosinevolution.com order. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company, their classic gold and black plates are back and available at powersplates.com. They continue to use the highest quality parts available inside and out on their presses, like their high-end thermal coupler, which learns your patterns of use to maximize efficiency and heat distribution when squishing that precious resin. They're still assembled and tested one by one in their garage to make sure that every handcrafted set of plates gets to you ready to do work and stay doing work. So if you're in the market for a rosin press, specifically the highest grade rosin press on the market, visit powersplates at powersplates.com 
or on Instagram at Powersplates and pick up your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers, rosin press. And don't forget to save $75 off all Powersplate systems by using our savings code, the letters THI. Again, THI saves you $75 at Powersplates.com. Shout out to Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company, who you can visit at sixstarsociety.com or on Instagram at the number six underscore star underscore society. Whether you're looking to keep dry and warm in or out of the washroom with their water resistant star anorak jackets, or you're looking to chill in their ultra comfortable hash of sweatpants, they have all the gear that you need to show your love for the resin. They're also a small batch company, so if you like their designs, be sure to grab them before they're gone, including their hasher line and their Save by the Melt, some of my favorites. So again, if you want gear to reflect your love for the resin or give your hashy friend a gift that gets them and their love for the resin, then visit Six Star Society at sixstarsociety.com and use our savings code, the letters T-H-I, to save 5% on your entire order with Six Star Society. And the last thing I wanted to say is we look forward to hosting coffee and donuts with Simply Adam in Tulsa, Oklahoma on February 11th and 12th. Tickets are still available on Eventbrite and you can find the link via our Instagram at the Hashishin or at the coffee.donuts.adam account. I appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I'm excited to be here with Brian, better known as Goat Organics, based out of Washington State. You can follow him on Instagram at Goat Organics. What's up, Brian? I appreciate you taking the time to talk, man. Hey, man. Yeah, how are you doing? Uh, glad to be here. Uh, we've been talking about this for a while, and I'm glad we're finally making it happen. Yeah, me too, man. Sometimes it does take a little while for these things to come to fruition, and you know, based on people's schedules, and I know everybody's kind of busy. And I know you're still definitely involved like in the cannabis industry. So talk to us a little bit about what you're doing currently. Well, right now I work for a producer processor here in Washington state. So that basically means we grow and process cannabis into various different product types, which is quite a bit different than what I used to do. And so nowadays I basically work in the processing department. I handle like the curing and drying of all of our harvests, quality assurance testing, quality control bulk inventory, and a slew of other things. I used to make hash of this company, but that's kind of become less and less of a thing as our flour just sells like hotcakes and we can't keep it in stock. So basically, most of our products end up going to flour or pre-rolls. Hash is kind of a secondary or tertiary product line for us. Yeah, you jokingly told me in one of the times that we spoke that you're a glorified inventory manager. (laughs) I think is how you referred to it. Pretty much exactly. I don't even know if it's glorified at this point, but that's basically <laughs> yeah, what, what I do. And I, I get to mess around with some like oil blends every now and again, but it's, you know, it's stuff like distillate and BHO terpenes, you know, for carts or infused joints, stuff like that. Every once in a while, I'll get, a, get in and do a wash or, you know, do some, some rosin squishes. We kind of mess around with a few rosin joints lately. We call them rosin tips and they're pretty awesome. So that's kind of a fun product and something I never really did in the past, you know, when I was like smoking solvent lists back in the day. And when I still do, generally it's dabbing, but we found a pretty good way to get these joints infused and the flavor from the rosin comes through really well. Funny enough, I remember you mentioning that to me last time. And I believe you said that the rosin is actually flower rosin. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. It is flower rosin. 
we, we make use of like our smaller buds, our pre-roll type material, which squishes out pretty well. So we get good flavor, good yields as well, which is really what, what makes it all make sense for us. And then one thing I found is normally like if you're to go take a, a dab of flower rosin, unless it's, you know, a really special strain or just like a really, really high quality fresh press, you're generally going to get some sort of like popcorn-y type flavor. What I found is when you smoke the, the rosin in these joints, you don't get any of that popcorn flavor. You just get a lot of, you know, strain-specific flavor. So it's something I would have never thought of in the past just because of flower rosin, but I actually really, really enjoy it. Yeah, I, I find that curious myself in that the fact that smoking it versus dabbing it produces a different type of effect. And obviously combining that with the flower probably does its own thing as well. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, but definitely something about smoking it versus dabbing, you get a much more pleasant experience overall. Yeah, that's interesting, man. So you mentioned coming to House of Cultivar. Is that correct? Is that where you're at? Correct. Yeah. You came in there to make hash and now you're not doing that almost at all. Can you tell me why? Well, the main reason is basically because our flower is in such high demand that we generally don't do hardly any fresh frozen extract or, you know, like whole plant fresh frozen. So we, we just don't have the, the good material available for solventless extraction. On top of that, we grow like a ton of different strains. That's like one of, one of the big things about the company I work for. And a good portion of them just don't wash that well. You know, we definitely have a few, few strains that do really well. If we ever grow enough of those, I try to get some, you know, convince my boss to do a wash. But generally, you know, all that material is just going to, to flower sales. So I don't get any of it for water hash or any rosin or anything like that. And so can you tell me what was the mentality of bringing you in originally to work that angle? Was that something that they kind of aspired to and then had to shift from type thing? I'd say so. Honestly, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what my boss is thinking, but for the most part, yeah. And basically when I first started working for House Cultivar, I, I was leaving a company that I'd started, a solventless company here in Seattle uh, called Turpco. And all we did was hash and rosin. And when that company shut down, I was looking for a job and I was already buying material from House of Cultivar to wash. And so basically I, I talked to the, the owner over there and went over and started doing a, a couple of test washes, trying to figure out what strains would work for him. Found a couple. We did a few runs. We actually made rosin and sold rosin there for probably a year, year and a half. But again, as soon as the demand for more flour increased, there was just less hash material available for me. So it just no longer made sense financially for the company and we kind of shifted away from it. Since you brought up Turpco, I know that was kind of a venture that you did being essentially one of the very first companies on the rec market to attempt to do like a solvent list only. Yeah. I mean, then maybe there's another, a couple others, but yeah, I think we were probably at that point in time, one of the few solvent list only companies and, you know, my business partners back then, Turp Hunter, Voodoo Melts, um, had a couple other guys involved as well. Uh, but we were all really, really passionate about non-solvent hash. And we had been working together at a greater today and whatnot. For us, that's, you know, we, we did, we were going to grow weed as well, but that was, that's a whole nother story. But basically we ended up just ba mainly utilizing our processing license. And so our focus was solely on solventless hash because that's what we were all good at and what we were passionate about. And what were some of the troubles that you guys ran into when working on that project? Most of the issues we had were you know, interpersonal type stuff, you know, we had enough four business partners at that point in time. And so getting everyone to agree on stuff that could be difficult. 
And, and then on top of that, we have the liquor control board to contend with and to deal with building, permitting, that sort of stuff held us up for about a year. And then our farm license uh, was over in eastern Washington and is in this county, uh, Chelan County. And uh, right after we you know, signed a lease for this place and got licensed over there, Chelan County put a moratorium against outdoor cannabis farms. So we basically couldn't utilize the growing portion of our license, which put a big strain on us sourcing material to wash because we we're definitely planning on growing and washing a lot of our tried and true genetics we had at that point in time. And then again, we just weren't able to do that. So we had to go out and source everything and finding high quality you know, material that's going to meet our standards for, you know, what, you know, what we're doing back then, you know, five, six star and like really high grade rosin, that was difficult. So. And now that you're working under a different company and you kind of, although their business model is totally different, I'm curious, what are some of the things that you see that you need to be a successful solventless company in the state of Washington right now? Things that you need to be successful in the, the 502 market, well, particularly for solventless, you need to care about growing the right genetics and then grow them well enough that you can get those primo resin heads and get your yields where they need to be. Because with the tax structure up here, the state gets a decent amount of, of all, the, all the money that comes from cannabis. So basically, the producer processor gets you know, roughly a third or even less than you know, whatever a gram sold for. So if like you got a $60 gram on the shelf, the producer processor is going to get about $20 for that. So you really got to get your ducks in a row so that you're, you're being efficient and you're, you're getting good yields and, and all that. Cause you know, otherwise it just doesn't make sense financially. And then, you know, up here, the Washington market's kind of interesting. I feel like it's different than like the California market or the Oregon market. I feel like, you know, up here, you can probably get one of the highest quality, cheap eighths of weed anywhere in the state, which again, just translates to producers and processors getting a little bit less money for having to produce a higher quality product. Again, just got to have your, your shit together so that dollars make sense. And why do you think that is that good quality herb is still pretty relatively inexpensive? I'm not exactly sure. But just from what I've seen, I know there's plenty of companies down in California getting 60 plus dollars for eights. And that's, there's a lot less of that going on in Washington. Part of that could be, uh, it's all about consumer education, as well as like what people are willing to place value in. So it's just people who like to wear designer brand name clothes versus people who don't care. I think it's that kind of that mentality. I know people have always joked about people in Seattle, you know, the, flip-flops and, and, and sandals guy or, you know, the, the millionaire dude walking around in sweatpants. So I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but it definitely seems to be a trend to me. And that's something that I talk a lot about with people is, you know, education. And I'm curious, since you are a local guy born and raised and you've seen a lot of the changes that have happened there, how educated do you feel the general public is like at least the cannabis consumers, are they generally more informed than you say, like in the rest of the country? It's kind of hard for me to say, you know, to compare consumers here to other places, because honestly, I haven't spent enough time with the general consumer in other states to know. Okay. But I, I, one thing that I can say is that over the past, what, since weed was legalized here in 2015, uh, over the last six years, 
consumer education has gone a long way. People are starting to recognize quality and I feel like people are paying more for, you know, better quality product if they see value in it. Uh, I definitely know there's more brands nowadays selling expensive grams of, you know, hash rosin, six star and or just, you know, a 60 to $75 eighth on the shelf. And there's more, more brands doing that, more consumers willing to pay that money for that quality. I think part of it's, you know, just like with food, you know, if you grow up eating, you know, macaroni and cheese, grilled cheese sandwiches and tomato soup, you know, like, sure, that's fine for a while. But as soon as you like have something better, you know, you go have a good steak or, you know, go to a nice restaurant and eat some, you know, a charcuterie plate or something like that, you know, then, you know, there's something better out there. And so I think it takes a while for people to realize, you know, first of all, to, to get a palate and really um, understand, you know, the nuances between different strains, you know, just like coffee or, or wine, you have to be able to appreciate those nuances to know when there's a real difference in quality and then maybe associate some value to that, you know, that difference in quality. Yeah. And relating that back to Turco, you were saying that, again, one of the challenges, I believe this is in our prior conversation where, you know, even $60 a gram at that point kind of was a little bit of a reach to get into the recreational market. But like you said, nowadays, there's grams that are, you know, $90 and selling. So I definitely would see that there's a correlation there between people kind of figuring out what's what. And like you said, putting a certain value to what they're spending their money on. Definitely. Yeah. That's a, I've seen that exact same thing happen. And then I, you, you never really know, but yeah, it definitely seemed uh, like a 60 dollar gram back in the day was really pushing it. Where again, nowadays it's like basically entry level for good hash. So going back to when it shifted over to recreational, you know, one of the things that has stood out to me from that is that I think you guys are the only state that at least under the recreational model allows no home growing. So I was curious what your opinion on that was or what your thoughts were on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that frustrates me for sure. Yeah, so you can still have like a medical card here and you can grow at home with your medical card. But yeah, as far as just your average everyday person, yeah, you're not allowed to grow any cannabis, which I just think is terrible because everyone should grow cannabis, especially if you want to. To me, it's just kind of like, you know, obviously just like a tax revenue thing where they just want all the you know if you're going to be smoking weed the government's going to get a cut of it like recently or maybe about a year ago the liquor control boards are up here kind of started to relax a little bit i heard that they hired some sort of consultant who told them that they were treating these legal cannabis businesses as if they were illegal businesses and that they're really not helping these businesses exist or do business and and these are again are legal companies paying big tax dollars and therefore the state should be helping them not trying to constantly hit them with fines and citations and stuff. Anyways, my, my point is I, I feel like Washington state when they legalized cannabis, it really was just like a tax dollar thing. They really wanted to have a really tight grasp on things and they still kind of look at cannabis as if, as if it's a real harmful drug or something. I don't really know how to say it other than that. That was a little bit long winded, but yeah, I think we should all be able to grow weed. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And I, I do find it interesting that there's these, you know, movements to kind of stop that in other places as well. But I, I also I definitely agree that it's people's right to be able to do that, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's so easy. And 
just doesn't really make any sense. It's one thing if you want to grow it at home and go sell it. Sure, you know, maybe make that illegal. But if you're just going to grow it and smoke it yourself, then there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And speaking of growing, you started your growing career indoors with a friend? Yeah, yeah. Basically, I had my medical card back in the day. Uh, me and my roommate, probably like 2010 or something like that, first started diving into the world of growing. And yeah, it was mostly indoor. Um, I think I'd had a couple of plants before that. But outdoor up here in Seattle is tough just because of the, the cold, rainy fall that, that hits us really quick. So, And would you say the majority of the cultivation is indoor because of that? Because Seattle has this you know, kind of rep where I think a lot of that started in that scene, maybe. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then the in- indoor does well here too, because like, especially back in the day before everyone was running air conditioners and running sealed rooms and stuff like that. It's cool enough here most of the year that you can run a, a grow indoors and just either passively cool it or just run some, some inline fans. Yeah. Whereas I think, you know, if you're down in Southern California, you're going to have a little bit harder time running a bunch of thousand Watts in your basement when it's 90 degrees outside. Yeah. The weather outside kind of lends a little better to growing it inside. Interestingly. But uh, East of the mountains over in Washington, you can get some decent outdoor, uh, great hoop house or, you know, greenhouse conditions. But again, we're a little bit further from the equator up here than, you know, Southern Oregon or, or California. So we just, we get these, you know, when fall rolls around, it comes on quick. Daylight hours fall off really quickly, and then the rain comes in. So if you got anything outside past mid-October, it better be mold-resistant because it's going to mold up, like, real bad. Right. I'm curious, you know, you were talking about when that permit got taken from your grow ability with Turco. Uh-huh. That sounded like you guys were going to be running at least hoop house, if not outdoor. Was that the plan? Yeah, so we had this plot of land, whatever, forget exactly how big it was, out in Wenatchee. Yeah, and it came with a fence, cameras, irrigation, uh, a little bit of power, all sorts of stuff. And we we're just going to run a full term outdoor for the first year, and then uh, work on building some hoop houses and and all that. But yeah, unfortunately, never got that far. I'm just curious what your take is on you know indoor versus outdoor residencying as likely the majority of stuff you've worked with has been indoor. Well, uh, I love sun-grown resin myself, especially like hoop house or or greenhouse resin. Uh, It seems to be a little bit cleaner than just straight outdoor, but uh, outdoor can be great too. Um, Although I'd say probably 90% of what I've washed or or more, maybe 98% of what I've washed is, is all been indoor. And I think the made, you know, the major benefit to washing indoor material is the cleanliness. And obviously, an indoor grower who has their conditions dialed in is going to be able to produce some really nice resin. Whereas like if you're growing outdoor in a hoop house, you might sacrifice a little bit of quality, but you're going to get so much more biomass for so much less work that it you know can kind of balance out a little bit. I think uh, where people go wrong, particularly outdoor growers, greenhouse growers, is when they're trying to harvest something really quickly and they don't properly, you know, buck and freeze their material. So then you can maybe get some of that resin breaking down, not freezing properly, not separating from the plant material, you know, during your wash, basically like a greener, grassier type hash. But again, I think if you process your material well, you can get great hash from outdoor hoop house or indoor. Yeah, it is always interesting to see how important 
just the processing of the plant material is after spending so long growing it, people sometimes seem to kind of rush through that. Yeah, yeah, you're 100% right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I kind of understand, though, if you're looking at 100, you know, one pound outdoor plants or something like that, you're like, oh, we just got to get through this, you know, I'm going to sacrifice a bit of yield just to get these suckers down. Right. But yeah, as, as things scale up, it's, it, I think it's more difficult to maintain those quality standards, but they can definitely pay off. I got a buddy I was just talking to the other day, Kaya over Pacific Northwest Roots, and I know he ta- they're like really meticulous with how they treat their fresh frozen when they're prepping for washes. And um, oh, it sounds like they're, they're knocking it out the park on yields. So they're definitely doing something right. Their hash is amazing too. Yeah, I haven't tried a lot of it. I've tried some of their coffee and I was actually just communicating with Kaya the other day and he was telling me they've processed like kilos and kilos of hash this year already and said it's kind of a trip. So it's pretty cool to see the market progress and, and hopefully hash actually sticks around in the rec market. Oh yeah, Kaya's he's killing it up here. He's got, in my opinion, he's probably one of the top three hash makers or his company uh, right now. He's, he's selected some really nice cultivars he works with. Uh, like the pink lemonade is, is really dank. You know, he's got a bunch of his, his coffee crosses that do well. So yeah, he's got a good lineup and then his crew does really good work. And their stuff seems to, to move pretty well up here. I, I got friends who buy it all the time. And you see it around and you hear people smoking it. So that's good. Yeah, like you said, and I mean, he talked about this, I believe in his interview too, is just having it dialed in having the right genetics, knowing how to grow them, you know, and once you got that dialed in, then you just really need the the market. And the like you said, I, I think the, the consumer education, which I would venture to say out in Washington is probably more advanced than the majority of the rest of the country, you know? Yeah, def- definitely. When it comes to hash, people know that know their shit up here for sure. You know, there's been a lot of big hash makers that come from the area so people have been smoking it for a long time and what i find interesting or sometimes i I wonder this myself is like all these people smoking hash out there how many of them are going to the store and buying it you know um and i think the the answer to that you know i'm not exactly sure is there's more people smoking hash in general now and a lot of the new hash smokers are going to the rec stores and are are the ones kind of driving the the market now and the solventless thing because anybody who's been smoking hash for you were smoking hash five, six years ago, knows how to get it outside of the store. Right. Yeah, that is an interesting dynamic, man. As the markets grow and as, as new consumers come in, you know, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what will happen, but that that's probably likely the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've worked with a couple of like 22-year-olds that just love hash and rosin. And they're definitely pretty educated. They know this stuff. Definitely more so than I did at that age. Yeah, so going back a little, we were talking about when you were growing at first, and you have kind of an interesting relationship, I feel, with Fresh Frozen in the sense that I believe you told me you've always made hash from Fresh Frozen, and that even though you hadn't made hash up until that point, you had heard that preparing it Fresh Frozen would produce better hash? Yeah, I forget exactly who it was. It might have been a greener today, Danksar, uh, whoever it was, uh, Anyways, it either could have been uh, my old roommate who I made hash with originally from with some old bottom of the bag type trim stuff, which did not come out good. So I at least knew that. And then um, I you know, caught wind of the fresh frozen thing from somebody. And I think it was Danksar, Greener Today folks. And 
that was just how they had heard to do it. I don't know where they heard it. And then that's anytime I helped out working there, that's how we would trim. We would trim fresh. And so when I started growing, that's how we processed my weed. And so I had fresh frozen trim in the freezer. And then it was pretty much as simple as just doing a quick wash with a five gallon bubble man set. And the hash came out fire, super melty, super sticky, really hard to work with, especially when I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, you know, it really, to me, just proves the point that it's all about input material and how that input material is processed. Because it wasn't very hard for me to stumble on full melt hash, even with rudimentary skills and processes. That's something that you guys understood early on was that a lot of it had to do with the genetics. And it's something that I definitely want to talk about with you because you guys had a kind of interesting dynamic, I feel like, in that it seems like it was a large group of guys that were working kind of individually, but also collectively. And everybody was running genetics and people were basically learning on the fly or from each other. Yeah. I mean, what it comes down to, I think is almost exactly what you said, but you know, you can accomplish more with, you know, a group of people than you can by yourself, especially when it comes down to like pheno hunting or doing test washes because back then, you know, we, we didn't know about like the jar tech test washes. And, and generally, we would just trim something, put the trim in the freezer, and then it would just get washed. But through that, you know, trial and error and with people pheno hunting, and it, basically through all that, we basically, we probably ran through more phenos than most people or, you know, more genetics than most people at that point in time. And then we actually washed most of them. So it I think we did have like a lot of data. It wasn't like compiled in any sort of way, but we had definitely had a lot of data and a lot of knowledge pretty early on in the hash game. Another interesting thing was that you guys were popping a lot of seeds as well, which I think really kind of started around that time to become a more popularized concept. Yeah, definitely. We're always looking for the next best thing. And up in Seattle, we didn't have many like OG or sour or chem type Turks. So for me personally, I was always hunting for that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, we found a lot of cool gear over the years. Some of it we still have around. I just got my ghost train haze cut back the other day. I'm super pumped on that. You know, that like the Pineapple Express we've been running for years, you know, probably eight plus years. And then there's also hundreds of other things that we've grown and seen and, and let go. But yeah, genetics to me is really the coolest thing because not only do you get like a new turt profile, a new flower, a new flavor or whatever, but also seeing how that resin performs, you know, during extraction and finding those out of 10 females, which is the best washer that also has terps and um, really getting particular with, you know, genetic selection on that level. I'm curious how common, and this might be kind of a hard thing to answer or quantify, but how common was it for you guys to find something that checked the majority of the boxes? Not super common. Honestly, most things didn't check all of them, uh, especially if you go by like modern day flower quality. But, you know, it's something like GMO where you're like, all right, it ain't the best grower. You know, you got to run it 11 weeks to have it finish or whatever, but you grow it so you can wash it. You know, we would find certain strains that would fit certain niches and, and play a certain role. You know, our Pineapple Express, we, the flower is fantastic. People love it. You know, if they wanted sativa uh, back at the medical stores, that would be like the first one I'd recommend if we had it in stock. Same with Ghost Train Haze. And the pineapple dumps hash. Uh, Ghost Train Haze 
doesn't yield quite as well, but it's really high quality hash. So, you know, it's really just about finding strains and then it's like, you know, uh, knowing what your tool is and then knowing how to use it best. So you choose your strains, you, you grow them, and then they, they f- fulfill a certain role until they maybe they don't need more until you find something better that can fit that slot and then you move on. I know you see a lot of cultivars now at your current job. I think you told me your boss is the guy who has the most access to genetics you've ever met kind of thing. But I'm curious if you miss that secondary part of the extraction process of finding the ones that work within these particular parameters. Yeah, I I do miss it a little bit. And back in the day, it was, it was never about money because we were generally like washing trim and or small buds. For us, it was just like, oh, you got this material, you got to do something with this. And so it was just really cool that you could make such an incredible product from your, you know, your byproducts, you know, to get like full melt five or six star hash off of, you know, essentially a byproduct was really awesome. And now scale so different and it's doing things for a job. You know, I think there's, you always got to think about profit nowadays. And so it takes some of the fun away from it. And then also I'm not going to go just do a bunch of test washes for my my own fun at, at, while on the clock. And I'm not going to go there when I'm not on the clock to go do test washes either. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I was just curious. You know, you mentioned it wasn't hard to get hash to be melty, even when you didn't have like a great understanding of how to process it. What were some of those early challenges or even maybe some of the mistakes that you made at first when processing? Well, uh, when I first started making hash, uh, you load your washer, you, you spin it, you, you drain it, you collect the hash. And then from there, I was like, what do I do now? You got like this wet patty of hash on, you know, I don't even know what I was putting it on back in the day, a cardboard box, or maybe if I was smart, it was on a piece of parchment. Or yeah, I guess there's those dry screens, those little 200 microns dry, dry screens. But uh, the drying process was brutal back in the day, especially if you had a good run that was sticky and melty because as soon as you pulled it out that bag, as soon as you pulled it out that cold water, it starts sticking to everything and you couldn't break it up very well either. So at, at first, what I would try to do is use like a credit card or something like that and like kind of chop it up and dice it up and get it as small as possible, get a little bit of surface area in there and help expedite the drying process. Yeah. And actually that's how I won my first cannabis cup working with the agreement today, guys, it was just with some basic ass it wasn't even sieved, it wasn't microplane, it was just chopped up with a credit card hash. But it was super melty. It was probably like a five-star melt. That was good enough back then, I guess. Yeah, I'm assuming everybody else, whoever else was making water hash at the time, probably had similar techniques or similar drying processes. I think so. I mean, there's, I mean, at least the people I knew. Um, there's definitely people like Matt Rise and Nicotee. You know, I'm sure Jibs and them were doing something by then. And then a slew of other people who were definitely knew how to dry hash better than me. Uh, one guy, Jeff Church, he made good hash back in the day. He knew what he was doing. And uh, he was like part of the crew that brought like this, the star system up to Seattle, you know, five, six star or whatever. So, yeah, they knew what they were doing. But it was only a matter of time. I think it was at first Cannabis Cup. I think I had either met Nicotee or Sam Speak or something like that. And he kind of inspired me to to push my drying techniques and really get that figured out. Cause I knew it wasn't ideal. 
And then beyond that, you know, Matt Rise had a, a pretty sick tutorial on the internet for a while. I don't remember exactly when I saw that, but that's where I picked up the microplane tech. For a long time, I was just doing like the nicotine style sieve tech, and that was also working out pretty well. I think people, some people reverted back to that. I'm curious, you said that you like knew that it wasn't the best way to go about it. Why? It just seemed wrong. It was just like a sticky mess. It didn't seem efficient. It didn't dry evenly. You know, the outside would be kind of like this crusty layer and the inside would be a different color. There's just a number of red flags. And it just didn't look like hash that I'd seen before. And most of what I'd seen before was probably some form of like pressed hash from somewhere, you know, pressed sift or something like that. But it did not resemble that in the slightest. And then it would cake up. That was the other thing. As soon as it was really dry, it would just get all cakey and change textures totally. The smell would be off. Again, a lot of red flags there. Well, cool, man. I think this could be a good opportunity for first smoke break. You done? Let's do it. All right, man. Sounds good. Shout out to our main sponsor and one of the big reasons we're able to keep bringing you the podcast, Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. We want to thank them for always believing in the platform and showing us so much support and being able to bring you not only the podcast, but live events like Coffee and Donuts with Adam, which is coming to Tulsa, Oklahoma on February 11th and 12th of this year, where we proudly use their wash bags and rosin bags to teach our curriculum because we honestly believe that they have the most reliable and well-made bags in the game. So if you need the best deal on wash bags on the market or rosin bags in any size, even custom sizes, then you can visit Rosin Evolution at rosinevolution.com and use our savings code, the letters T-H-I, the number 710, that's T-H-I 710, saves you 5% on rosinevolution.com on your entire purchase. I appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. All right, cool. So let's talk about the star system because you brought it up. And I know that when you first became knowledgeable about hash and even hash making, it wasn't really a present thing. And then later on, as you worked and into the medical days, it seemed to become more of a thing. So can you tell me how you understood the star system? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the star system is interesting because it's really subjective to to whoever's doing the grading. And uh, like I was telling you earlier, a guy named Jeff Church used to have great hash in, in the medical days. It was a little bit more like old school. I think he was uh, making it off of dry, uh, you know, cured material of some sort, whether it was trim or flour, I don't know. But uh, he would get some decent melt. And generally, I would see like his two to three star, which would be a little bit darker in color. He was good at drying it. So it was like this nice kind of sandy texture. And you could like form it up into a ball or kind of roll it into a bit of like a Tootsie Roll, you know, it was pliable to a certain degree. And then again, like the two to three star would be something that you would either smoke in a joint, put on a bowl, you know, reminiscent of like kind of more old school hash where you can get it to bubble, you can get it to melt down a little bit, but it leaves quite a bit of residue. You know, for us, we were, especially before rosin, we weren't concerned with anything under four star most of the time. So uh, when we were washing, we were always looking for strains that put out the the best yield of four or five and and occasionally six star, although we didn't generally dive into the six star level of hash too often. We kind of left that as like a, a damn near unattainable level of dank. But uh, we made a lot of four and five star. Uh, generally on like a good hash strain, we would see 
maybe four star and like the 160 micron unless it was super dank and then sometimes you get like some five five plus and then like on the 120 you could hit some five star if it was good 70 micron 73 micron that'd be your your main five star bag and then you know the 45 25 microns would be moving back towards that you know four star style melt um, except for cookies and cream which is like it was weird the 25 micron there was like damn near six star it was it was like melted like like water yeah man we we used to do take a lot of de- test stabs back in the day doing our grading uh, you know emails really helped a lot people used to use like a little screen sometimes and you put your hash on the screen put it on your email and you can kind of watch the melt and see what residues left over on your screen like was that jibs uh, over at trichome heavy extracts and like tony at blue river they were like working together way back in the day they showed me that tech but for us, we generally just use like a regular e-nail with like a little uh, donut style nail on it. And uh, we would drop, you know, a little flag of hash on there and then grade it based on, you know, the amount of residue it left. It was not a perfect exact science, but we generally tried to grade fairly conservatively. So if you're going to you know, be getting five star, it was generally pretty melty. It was going to taste good. You wouldn't get much of like a charred flavor uh, unless you hit it super hot. And again, minimal residue. Uh, and the four star, we still sold a decent amount of because that's where a lot of your other microns would fall. And so when you were talking about looking for these four and five stars and kind of holding the six stars as being this elusive thing, was that one of the boxes that you guys were checking when you were looking through these genetics? Yeah, basically, you know, five star was really the, the goal. And I don't think... Well, at least at a greener today, we didn't ever really sell much six star. Later on, you know, we started refining our technique a little bit when we, you know, cookies and cream came around, stuff like that. You know, it was much easier to attain that six star level of quality. You know, so the cool bot too, that was another big change in the hash game is when, when we could actually keep our hash room super cold, especially back in like the sieve, sieve days and the, the microplane days. Uh, if you were trying to hash in a warm room, as soon as you pulled that hash out of the bag, you, know, you just got this sticky clump of resin and it's really hard to work with. And also the, the cooler washing temps help you know, for a cleaner extraction or separation of the, the trichome head. But basically what I'm getting at is as the years progressed, we refined our technique to where six stars a little bit more attainable, you know, and especially at, at the beginning, you know, we were always told by Jeff Church that it was not attainable. And so we'd kind of like, we're like, oh, we don't want to like step on, on these, on his toes. We don't, you know, kind of adopting that, that star system. And so we kind of just always stopped at that five star level. So I'm curious, do you think that the main component of a six star hash is the genetics? I, I think maybe at that point too, you know, genetics play a, a huge role in it, but also I think how you process that material down is really going to increase your your chances of getting like a, a you know really high quality melt like a six star it'll also increase your yield of that high quality melt you know if you're like using like a machine bucker you know to buck your fresh frozen you're probably going to be destroying some of those really delicate trichome heads that if you're if you're extra careful when you're processing your stuff those are gonna be like the first ones to fall off in your wash so if you do like a super short wash that's where you're going to get like that really, really nice clean resin or six star, whatever you want to call it. So this is kind of a hypothetical. If you were to be processing material 
that had grown six star resin and you processed it in maybe not the most efficient manners or with not the proper environmental controls, could that drop from being a six star to a five star in your opinion? Possibly. And then what it also might do. Yeah, I'd say sure. Yeah, it definitely could do that. It could also just greatly reduce the percentage of six star hash you might get, you know, right. um, basically decrease your overall potential for that wash. And, you know, cause if you think about water hash, it's, me- you know, it's mechanical separation. So if you take those sticky trichome heads and you crush them into that plant material, they're not going to want to come back off very easily. You're going to have to work a little harder to get that, that resin off there. If you're ever going to get it off of there and the harder you got to work material, the more plant material is going to break down. The least you can touch your material, the better, the colder you can do your wash, the better generally, and then choose the right genetics. How long was the learning curve for you to know that all these things were important to the process? I, I still feel like I'm learning, you know, I'll still pick up tips from people, but it was a while. And again, at first we weren't like tracking yields or anything like that. God, I remember for a while, we only did like a single 15 or 20 minute wash on material and we'd throw it away. So I don't even know the amount of hash we left on the table. Yeah, so the learning curve was definitely sharper at first. Uh, the first probably year, year and a half of making hash, I evolved, evolved quite a bit. And then when the freeze yard came around, that was like a whole nother ballgame. Had to whole, learn a whole new set of procedures, and it really just took a lot of work out of the process and almost had to unlearn a few things at that point. And again, just to clarify, when you guys were running that material for 15 minutes, and throwing it out, this is coming from trim? Yeah, mostly trim, but sometimes you know, there'd be some, some small nugs in there. But we, at that point in time, we never did whole plant fresh frozen washes. And what was the logic behind these short washes? We did not realize that there was more hash material in there. You know, being lazier. I don't know. Again, at that point, it was the trim was byproduct for, for the most part. So if you got something from it, you were happy. Oh, and then also, uh, you know, back then it, we weren't concerned with like the, the environment of the room we were washing in. So, you know, you go buy a couple of bags of ice, you do your wash, you know, your one wash and you're like, oh, I'm almost out of ice now. And so you're like, oh, I'm done. So there's just like a number of, uh, of things that we were unaware of back at that point in time. So I'm curious, you guys did a lot of washing, a lot of almost like test washing, and you had this loose idea of like what a dumper was as people call it but you didn't have the data at first so how were you deciding which ones you were keeping was it literally just like a visual thing yeah and then you know you we would do some rough math you know we would definitely record the amount of you know input material for a wash or at least remember it and you're like oh you know, i got 50 grams off this wash and only put you know 1500 in you know, fresh frozen, then, you know, it's a better yield than really. It was just anecdotal at that point in time. And it's, it's pretty obvious when you have a good wash versus a bad wash too. So, you know, like again, that pineapple, you wash that, you, you know, you get, you know, the way we'd measure now, you know, four or 5% return fresh frozen where other strains, you know, back then we were probably hitting one to 2%. So it's pretty stark difference. Were you seeing any difference in the results when you were washing the smalls as well? 
I, I couldn't tell you necessarily. And I think a lot of the time there was like small buds mixed in with the trim. Was, these were all small washes. I don't, I mean, for the first couple of years of making hash, I hardly probably ever did a, a wash over 2000 grams fresh frozen. Yeah. You mentioned that to me before that you said that when you were growing and you were washing only trim, you had to produce a certain amount almost to make it worth washing. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, back then I didn't, wasn't growing as quite a much of a variety. And then I was growing a little bit more. So I generally had enough to do at least a small wash. But, you know, there's, you know, I do washes with three or 400 grams of fresh frozen. So it wasn't much. If I only had 100 grams, I'd either save it or mix it with something else. But not like nowadays where, you know, if you're, if you're like doing real extraction, you're trying to get 10, 20,000 grams of material for a wash. So. So let's talk a little bit about how the bubble hash evolved because you told me, and this is something that I've heard from other people in other areas as well, is that it really had little to no value. And over time that shifted and I found something pretty funny, almost ironic, is that you told me that the guy who really saw value in your water hash was a guy who was doing a lot of hydrocarbon extractions. Yeah. So, um, yeah, when I first started making hash, you know, again, it was off of our trim and, you know, we didn't see a lot of value in the trim and the hash was kind of just a little bonus to cherry on top. And generally it was, you know, people were like, Oh, I'll pay $10 a gram for bubble hash. That was like the going rate or whatever. And then, you know, we started making better hash. We started putting it in jars and, it was available at the medical dispensaries up here. And that's when we started charging a little bit more for it. But yeah, along the way, you know, I was meeting new people, meeting other extractors, other growers. This guy, Naughty, who was big into the, the hydrocarbon BHO game back in the day, he did like YouTube videos and, and a bunch of stuff like that. Uh, super cool guy. Yeah, I ended up meeting him and, you know, session with him. And he was just super impressed by the water hash we had back then, which was probably like a four to five star quality melt. And, um, yeah, and then he was, I think, probably one of the first people who was like, told me that, like, you know, basically he valued the solvent list arguably more than the hydrocarbon stuff he was making himself. Yeah, and that was like right during that transitional period where I think, uh, you know, medical was just being, uh, becoming a bigger thing everywhere. Uh, weed culture was evolving and people were definitely getting more educated, which is, again, what, kind of what we talked about earlier, where an educated consumer drives the market for higher end goods. And that to me was kind of like the kind of the tipping point right around then. I don't exactly remember the year, but Yeah, and also the evolution of dabbing as well, I feel like. It's yeah. like two cultures almost collided. Yeah, and the dabbing in the glass world, yeah, it's crazy. You know, back from the, the red hot titanium nail dabs to, you know, nowadays there's I don't even know how many different fancy bangers you can do your all sorts of low temp dabs on yeah it's definitely been interesting to watch speaking of that you spent some time at a place called seven point studio and you said that that was kind of like the heyday so tell us a little bit about that experience and what you were doing there uh yeah seven point studio was a lot of fun um i was i was mainly just there hanging out with friends and stuff you know seattle is and Washington in general is kind of a hub for borosilicate, you know, bong, pipe making, whatever, glass blowing. You know, you got 
played club banger in Seattle. You got Mothership up in Bellingham, Storm and Norman, Perpskirt, Aaron B, Pat's Glass, like Nate Dizzle. Anyways, there's I could go on like the list of people from around here. Uh, but I ended up meeting most of them at the Spot Seven Point Studios, which is a pretty awesome shared workspace. They'd have parties there and stuff too, like the Dope Cup. God, I mean Nate Dizzle, Swiss Perk, he used to throw pretty big parties. Glass blowers from all over the country would come in. I'd get to meet them. So it really was like, as far as Seattle go or went, it was kind of the epicenter for hash culture, glass culture, and all that stuff. It, it was a lot of fun to be hanging around there and, and be a part of it. And how did your diving experience evolve personally? Well, I mean, I was definitely exposed to, uh, you know, I been buying pipes and bongs and stuff since I was in high school. So I definitely was always a fan of, you know, hand-blown glass and smoking glass accessories and whatnot. But being at Seven Point, I was exposed to a completely, you know, different level of quality and just like, uh, you know, there's a lot of talented individuals around there. A lot of people doing really cool things. You know, that kind of inspired me to also step up my game. And again, there's people around there who would appreciate quality hash when they saw it. They really appreciated new flavors of hash. They'd be down to sit down and sesh and, you know, help me grade hash if, if I was doing that. And Yeah, so again, I think that just kind of helped evolve my quality standards, if nothing else. And also, again, like the, the glass blowers smoke a lot of hash. So if you, if they like your hash, generally everyone will like your hash. But <laughs> that helped a lot. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about Melt a little more because we talked about the star system and we talked about Melt a little earlier. We talked about the importance of genetics. What would you say is the next most important factor in creating resin that you're making specifically for that melt factor? Aside from genetics, uh, you know, then I guess it's how those genetics are grown. Um, You could have someone, if their lights are too intense or too close to the canopy, temps are up, or there's bugs or or mold, Um, all those things can lead to having a lower quality hash product at the end of it all. So again, just how the weed's grown, uh, attention to detail there, you know, that can be really important. But really, I think that the, you know, the harvesting process and the, the freezing process can be, can also play a huge role in it. You know, again, there's like these bucking machines you can use now that, you know, you can get a harvest down in no time, but how much resin are you going to damage in that process? Then again, there's always a balance there. You know, if you got a big outdoor crop, run it through that bucket shucker. You know, you're going to get what you're going to get. It's going to be fine. It's going to make sense for you. But if you're, you know, smaller scale or you're going for really high end quality, um, you know, how you handle that material goes a really, really long way. Yeah. So here's a question that I have is, you know, Six Star is kind of held as like this. The pinnacle. This ultimate thing, right? Yeah. And so basically from my small understanding is not everything can be six star. There can be genetics that are really good, really flavorful, all these different things, but the the potential of those trichomes just are not six star potential. Yeah. And honestly, I probably haven't dove into this as much as some, some people have, but I do think there is like some level of genetic potential for a plant and, you know, the trichome, structure is part of that but do you feel that the ones that do have the six star potential does that make that resin better 
is well, there, it's one thing if you, you know, you get a, a half a percent return yield on something and it's six star or something, you're like, you know, this is the best resin ever, but you know, so it's kind of what your, what your, your angle is and what you want out of it. But I'd say, hell yeah, man, like there's six star resins, the bomb. I, I do think it's like the closest representation to the actual flower in concentrate form. It's like the fresh pressed juice or eating a slice of fruit versus some pasteurized from concentrate or whatever. So I, I do think six stars is, is a, uh, again, it's like there's genetic potential that if, if without the right, without the potential, you're never going to get there. But I do think you could, God, actually, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. I'm still a little confused by your question, to be honest. Me too. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of like a hard uh, question to ask in the sense of like, all right, hold on. Let me let me start from scratch again. So I'm curious your thoughts on whether a genetic that has a six star potential is that resin better inherently because it's six star potential than, for example, a cultivar that has really interesting terpenes but doesn't have the genetic to be a six star potential. It's more of like a five star, four and a half star. Does the fact that one genetic has the potential to be a six star and the other one doesn't, does that create a difference in qualifications of being like one is better than the other in your opinion? That's a really good question. To me, you know, again, yeah, six, six star melt, having something graded purely on melt is pretty one dimensional. You're, you're leaving a lot of other factors out. That's one really cool thing about rosin is that you can get you know, those things that, you know, might not melt quite the way you want them to, might not hash the way you want them to, but they have an amazing turf profile. That's where rosin's awesome because it kind of allows you to, you know, go a different route and still experience those turps in the non-solvent platform. And then you can also get like, you know, I'll use cookies and cream again for an example. Cookies and cream produces tons of six star, but I will probably skip that. You know, if I had like five flavors in front of me and that's one of them, that would probably be one of the last ones I'm going to reach for. With that being said, like doing something like taking your cookies and cream and mixing it with, you know, like your tangy or something like that, that might not melt as well, but the little bit of that tangy is going to go a long way to like bring flavor and depth to that cookies and cream hash. So you can kind of do some cool like artisanal blends and, and get like almost the best of both worlds. And that, Tangy that you brought up, funny enough, is something that we were talking about on the break was something that you guys started running pretty early from your homie Turp Hunter. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Turp Hunter, I, I met him going to like horticulture school back in the day. We both liked weed a lot. So we, we hit it off and um, he was already kind of in the medical scene and he liked to pheno hunt, pop seeds. Uh, he grew good weed appreciated good weed when he saw it and yeah so basically we would hang out share you know share flour sesh up whatever and then i got him slowly into solvent list and then um you know through one of his pheno hunts he was popping tangy from from crockett way back in the day it was like the first seed drop from him of that and he found a couple of really really nice cultivars and one of them just so happened to dump hash and that was the one we he kept around. It had like this cheesy, raunchy, tangy funk to it. Really awesome turf profile. Great hash. It was fairly melty. Like definitely something you could have hit six star with if you're real gentle with it. 
but yeah, that was just cool because for me personally, I'd never experienced that terpene profile in a non-solvent extract. So, yeah, I mean, it, I think that orange ones typically, or lemon ones or limonene heavy ones, don't do well apparently. Yeah, definitely something to do with that terpene that kind of interferes or you know creates like a wet slick type resin versus like the stable resin need for mechanical separation but that tangy was a banger i'm sure someone still has it right now it's been a while since i've seen it hopefully the last question on the six star and you brought up the fact that jeff said six star was unattainable and i don't want you to speak for him but what do you think that meant i think that he meant that you could probably make six star but chances are when you thought you had six star it wasn't so I don't know what his experience was before that, but that was kind of, I, th- I believe, his angle. Definitely good to clarify that. But yeah, it wasn't that it couldn't be done, but it was just that it was very low chance of getting it there. And then even when you think you're there, good chance you're not. Right. Well, cool, man. I think this would be a good opportunity for a second smoke break. I want to take a moment to thank all the people that make up our community on Patreon for allowing us to continue producing episodes, including episode 37 with Go Organics, and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including MTS Farms, Kevin of Lifted Indina, Good Vibes Hash in Oregon, Chile Relleno Burrito in Trinidad, Milwaukee Jeff, Ryan, Jonah, and Mario in Illinois, my dude, The Real Cannabis Chris, The Hash Hive in California, the homies from Mission Hill Melts, the boys on the Big Island Pressing for Show, Gastown Fire and their Green Cedar Retreat in Tofino, Canada, Macro Melt, formerly known as Hash and Hedies in SoCal, Hiker Trash Cannabis in Maine, Garland in DC, Sandman Hash Star, Nick the Intern, our good friend Gendo420, the crew at Heritage Hash Co. Mendocino, and David at Rosin Evolution. We appreciate each and every one of you. Now back to the episode. So let's talk about one of my favorite hash strains ever, this OG Ghost Train Haze that you just got back, funny enough. And we've been chit-chatting a little bit about how I think it's so cool and funny to hear about that. And I know that you won some awards via that. And funny enough, I've got to try the genetics through the Hawaiian homies. And I think that comes from PNW roots. So it's just like this funny whole thing. But the story actually started where you got like three cuts or three plants of this and you were about to throw it away. But just because testing came along, it happened to stay around. Yeah, pretty much. So this is back in the Greener Today days um, when we were, you know, popping seeds and having fun. And uh, basically I got three seedlings from my boss at that time. And I think what I, I flowered them out. And I think in the first week, you know, I had a male and then I thought I had two females. And then one of the females ended up going like full Hermie. It had a whole male branch on it, which I've never seen since. So basically, I was just left with one female, not much of a strain selection, but it's what I had was what I was left with and ended up growing that out for probably two or three rounds. You know, it's different. You know, I hadn't grown any hazes at that point in time. And this is very lemon hazy. So that was kind of cool, but it didn't have the bag appeal. It was kind of loose. It was airy. It wanted to flower closer to 10 weeks. 
So it just didn't really fit in. And, you know, I was popping seeds and I wanted to make room for something else. So I was about ready to get rid of it. I know the Greener Today folks didn't care for it a whole lot at that point in time. So no one else is growing it. And then I, at that point in time, I started testing my flower. Forget which lab it was, but there was like the first lab that opened up in, in Seattle where you can go take your flower in and get potency tests. And uh, brought that in. And I don't remember exactly. I think it was like 25% THC, which at that point in time, I think was like the highest testing flower at the lab. So then I was like, oh, shit, got to hold on to this thing, which we did continue to grow it a little bit more. And then that's, I think, when the hash technique kind of got started to get refined as well. And that one didn't produce a lot of trim. So I, you know, I never washed it too much. But I remember one time washing it and getting just some phenomenal hash like you know at that point in time probably about as close to six star as that as i'd ever gotten and again that's kind of when i fell in love with it you know it, it tested well it extracted well it grew all right if you if you treat it or treat it or nice anyway so i really liked it yeah and then at one point in time i forget exactly all these years but uh we entered that in like the 2015 cannabis cup in in seattle and we, like, we took first place national with the ghost train haze hash that was like me turp hunter uh, working for and with a greener today yeah but that was a lot of fun good hash yeah i've tried it and like i said that profile is right up my alley and i'm impressed that those terpenes wash well you know there there's something unique to it where it's still super hazy in its own right but the terpenes come through loudly yeah, you, uh, you make a good point there. And God, it's been so long since I've actually grown the ghost train. I don't have like much data on how it actually yields or anything like that. But it was never the best yielder in hash form, but it was always decent. But the thing about it was the quality of the hash. Like every single gram would be like incredible quality. It would be melty, light in color, blonde. Uh, it's like the, you know, it's, it's pretty sandy for a haze. I think that's the, you know, obviously the one reason why it washes compared to some other ones is it's got a more of like a, a rigid wall on the resin head. And so it's easier to separate. Whereas a lot of hazes have like that wet slick resin that just crushes into the plant material. Did you but, also learn from that experience that maybe something that didn't have the best structure or bag appeal could produce such amazing hash versus thinking of it as flour. Yeah. And, um, you know, it can be a pretty good looking flower, but the hash is definitely better. So it is one of those strains, same with like that pineapple express, good flower, but the hash is phenomenal. I think the biggest thing I've kind of learned from the ghost train is that, you know, since then I don't, I can't think of too many other like lemony haze type strains that I've watched that have, have done well at all. And so the ghost train kind of stands apart from those because it's got that different resin composition. It's a little bit sandier, more stable, easier to pull off in a wash. Yeah, so it's unique in that sense from other hazes and other limonene dominant strains. Right, yeah. And it also has these kind of almost acidic nose-burning terps to it as well. So mm -hmm. it has a bunch of different notes in it, which are really cool. So I can yeah. definitely see how it did well in competition, especially probably competing to things that weren't necessarily as unique as it. Yeah. And a good batch of that hash is just, it tastes like, like lemon drops, like those little hard candies, just like bright lemon candy flavor. It's, it's really great. So let's talk about the competing a little bit. You mentioned you guys 
won a prize with the OG Ghost Train Haze. Was that your first competition? No, I think at that point in time, like the first can- High Times Cannabis Cup in Seattle, we, I think there wasn't many other, if any other entries that year. So we got first place there. <laughs> that was interesting. But yeah, and then I think we competed the next year, like 2013 at the High Times Cannabis Cup again. And there's a lot more competition that year. That's when like, a Tricom Heavy Extracts was there. Uh, I met Jibs and Tony from Blue River, Ken Wall, Nicotee. I met all those guys that year. And there's a lot of good hash in that competition. So I don't think we placed that year. And then and maybe it was, yeah, 2014, one of those years we cleaned up because we took the first place national and then first place medical as well. And then maybe like even third place medical or something like that for solvent list that one year. And that was all working with the greeter today. I got to, you know, give a big shout out to those guys again for, you know, just being really passionate about good weed and good resin. Yeah. And then uh, aside from high times, we competed in, again with the greeter today most of the time uh, in a bunch of other smaller cannabis cup type deals, more local like medical cups. And I'm always curious to ask people, like, what do you feel, if anything, that you gain from competing? And in some cases, you know, winning. Well, really, uh, to me, it was like, I, I always learned so much from the people I met there. You know, again, like people like, you know, Jibs and, and Ken Wall and Nicotee have taught me a lot about Wash and Hash. And then another year I went down to a Canvas Cup and met Matt Rise. And again, you know, I've learned a lot from him. So, yeah. And then also it's the, you know, seeing what else is out there. You know, it's good to see what the, the next, you know, what all the other best hash makers are coming up with. and keeps you on your toes so to say so you've talked a good amount about the greener today and i have a good idea of how you guys were working together but give us a little insight of how you came to work with them to begin yeah basically started off you know working at greener day with some buddies from high school we were all super passionate about cannabis and at that point in time we already smoked good weed because seattle has always had great you know, local weed or tons of Canadian weed if you're into that sort of thing. So I, I felt like, you know, having those you know, higher than normal quality standards at that point in time and all just being kind of on the same page with that was really helpful because, you know, it's like when you play sports with people who are as good or better than you, you tend to get better. So it's the same thing for us. You know, you're surrounded by people who are growing good weed and finding new genetics and, and washing new strain here and there your exposure to everything is just increased to the point where you just gain experience quicker and you see things other people may not see. Yeah. Greener Day was a good time, a, a you know, great, great place to learn about weed. And I've, I've always loved weed. So for me, it was like perfect. I really, you know, did enjoy working there for the most part. Yeah. I think it's cool. Like you mentioned, it's funny that all of you were kind of high school friends and a lot of you were doing similar things and then you all just kind of connected through the greener today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, that's, you know, part of that whole like medical collective thing back in the day. But yeah, it was, it was, it was fun times and just the culture and, and you know, the, the medical scene back then was a lot of fun. So it was, it was cool to be involved on, in, in that as well. You know, bringing up the culture is you told me that nowadays with so much regulations and stuff it's not necessarily as fun at least in your eyes i always had a lot of fun at you know weed events and weed events 
are still legal, except for you can't smoke weed at them in Washington state, unless it's in right. you know, a private area. And even then, you know, you can sometimes catch, catch shit. So, um, yeah, basically like, you know, high times doesn't come to Washington anymore, which that was always kind of the biggest one. And then back in the day, if you were having like a, some sort of medical marijuana weed event, people were smoking weed, hanging out, having a good time. Nowadays, if you go to any sort of trade show or, you know, any sort of cannabis event, they're generally dry as far as weed goes. That's really not fun. And then also the state just gets like 48% of every dollar sold in a recreational store. So that's a lot of fun being taken out of things right there. Yeah, that's a lot, man. I, again, I remember talking to Kaya and that's a, that's a hard way to operate. Yeah. Margins are pretty tight when the state's taking that much and it's not quite the same as it used to be. So give me a little bit more of an idea of what it was like in the medical days, you know, referencing this $60 grand that you were talking about earlier where now in the rec market, you'd be seeing about a third of that in the medical days. What did that look like? Yeah, well, in the medical days, it was, you know, they were, the stores, I think generally it was roughly $10 a star. So, you know, the five star would be 50 bucks a gram, whatever, four star, 40 bucks a gram, so on and so forth. And there's obviously like costs to run a business. So the, the medical d- dispensaries, I'm not exactly sure what their profit margins were, but I do know that they were not paying tax any more than a 10% sales tax like any other business. So that's 38% more, more money in somebody's pocket, not the government's. So that right there is just a complete game changer. And then, yeah, it's, it's, it costs a lot of money to get a license to do business nowadays as well. But it's all good things for the most part because things, as they get bigger, they evolve. And uh, the way medical marijuana was before was probably not 100% sustainable. But, you know, the way things were legalized up here is they took the fun right out of it. And yet you've told me that you would like to continue working in cannabis. Yeah, that's just because I like weed a lot. And I'm, you know, yeah, mainly just because I like weed a lot. And I like what I do. And I love seeing the, the different genetics. And, you know, it's not all pretty you know it is a job nowadays and sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do but ultimately it's a job and i can't complain when i'm just working with weed all day and I spend an hour a day smelling nugs or something like that you know it could be worse things to do for sure so i'm curious going back to what you just said about each star was about ten dollars let's call it mm-hmm. were you guys breaking down those washes like every single micron yeah we would go and we would grade every single micron and every single wash too so we did a lot of grading back in the day yeah but again these were small washes a lot of batches of hash um it might only be 40 to 50 grams and that was like all basically all the microns so and at what point did you switch over to microplaning because i don't think we've talked about that today Oh, microplaning. That was good. So one thing that I guess probably moved me towards microplaning more than anything else was meeting Matt Rise because he gave me a little bit of hash and it did not cake. And um, all my hash would cake up, you know, it'd look all, you know, sexy and, and whatnot for the first couple of days. And then it would turn into a dry crumble. This is back when I was just doing like SibTech 
and air drying. And so, um, yeah, I talked to Matt Rise a little bit, uh, looked at his tutorial and just started microplaning. And I think around that same time, the CoolBot came out, uh, which is like this device you can hook up to an air conditioner and then you can like drop below 60 degrees. You can, if your room's insulated well enough, you can drop down into the thirties. Anyway, so, uh, the CoolBot just allowed you to get a really high level of control over your environment which allowed me to microplane easier because in order to get the, the hash through it, especially good sticky, like six star style hash in order to get that through the microplane before it melts into a glob, you need to work pretty quickly. And the colder the room was, the more time you had to work on that before you had to put that patty back in the freezer. Maybe you go refreeze your hand in some ice water real quick before you grab the hash patty again. And so yeah, basically microplaning, you know, once I got that dialed in uh, with the cool bot and the cold rooms, uh, you know, we'd have a whole room air conditioned down to 45, 50 degrees for five days at a time to, to dry all this hash on sheet pans. But once we got all that figured out, we're making pretty good quality hash. It was stable, uh, you know, at room temperatures for fairly long amounts of time. Nice, consistent texture. Yeah, we got that system pretty dialed in. And then the freeze dryer came around. And then nobody needs microplanes anymore. And you said in reference to that earlier that you had to unlearn some things. What were some of those things? So um, when it took us back at Turpco, when we got our, uh, our state license you know, processing facility, it took about a year for us to get permitted. So in that time, the freeze drying technology had you know, come into the hash market. So... We originally had bought 360 square foot walk-in refrigerator to, to hash in and to uh, dry our hash in because at, up until that point in time, that's how we made hash. You know, it was microplaning and air drying. And the freeze dryer came out and turns out we didn't need a 360 square foot walk-in cooler anymore. So um, it was, and then, you know, it changed a few other processes, but for me, it was more just like, you know, I have to unlearn or stop using old equipment, learn new techniques. And basically, like a lot of the things that I had to be really careful about in the past, like, you know, working in a cold room, you know, having a sharp microplane, like all these other things, you just threw that out the window because you just have your freeze dryer sitting in your garage or whatever regular temperature room and you bring your hash out of your cold room, which you can be much smaller or even not in a cold room. The freeze dryer just allow you to get a lot more done with a lot less space. So it's interesting to me because you said that the freeze dryer in your eyes has basically solved the issue of drying resin. Yeah. To me, I mean, I think there could maybe be some like some nuances that could be figured out with the freeze drying process, but it seems to work really well for drying water hash. As far as I can tell, although, you know, people are always figuring out new ways to do things. So I guess never say never, but I think, yeah, for the most part, the freeze dryer is pretty much the end all be all to, to drying resin efficiently. What I find interesting about it is that you've told me that one of the things that really motivated you to kind of keep going with the water hash and solventless, if you want to call it, was that you always felt that there was something new to be discovered and that there was almost a sense of kind of excitement and that you feel like that's kind of not the case anymore. Yeah, I, I do. Um feel that to a certain degree but you know every once in a while somebody will tell me you know my, my homie was just talking about like 11 percent yields the other day but yeah so you know i guess there's always something new out there but 
at the same time, you know, I don't see there being any major changes. Cannabis in general has kind of hit a point where it's not changing as rapidly as it used to. You know, just the entire scene, whether it's flour, you know, BHO, ice water hash, rosin, whatever, it's it's all kind of become a little bit more stagnant. You know, I don't think there's going to be much like hash to rosin, you know, the, the invention of rosin, that was, like, that was a big deal. But I don't see what the next step is going to be. We, you know, we have rosin jam, we have rosin carts, you know, I just, but uh, yeah. So I feel like we've kind of hit the limits of, of where hash in general, whether it's solvent or solventless is going to go, especially with so many people making it these days. It's like there's, if someone hasn't figured it out by now, the chance of them figuring out something new is just getting less and less by the day. And you also mentioned that, you know, that was another of the dynamics that made it cool where there was more of a demand than there was a supply. And now it seems to be a surplus of supply. And I think you said something along the lines of like, when you did it right back then, it had a certain value to it as to where now maybe that's harder to, I don't know what the word is. (laughs) So I I think I kind of see what you're saying. Basically, like it, it was harder to, to make good hash back in the day, and there was less people doing it. So if you were doing it, there was more of a demand for it. Whereas nowadays, especially with stuff like the freeze dryer, and just the fact that there's recreational production in a whole slew of states now, there's just more weed being grown than ever before. There's more hash being made than ever before, and there may be more people buying it, but there's not more. You know, it's not the same percentage more people buying it than there are making it. So there's definitely more competition. And then, you know, that just drives, generally drives prices down. But, you know, there's some polarization that happens as well. But, you know, like states like what Oklahoma, I hear you can get fresh frozen for 10 cents a gram. So that's that's pretty cheap hash right there if you get a 4 or 5% yield. You know, it doesn't cost a whole lot to make that. And then just the market's flooded with cheap hash or just lots of hash. Yeah, Oklahoma is an interesting place. You know, just I think even last year, prices of flowers were still really high there, funny enough. That's crazy. Yeah, I've heard they have a great hash selection there, though. Yeah, definitely more than you would expect for a place like Oklahoma. For sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's talk about rosin a little bit, because I agree that was one of the big, big shifts that's happened, and it didn't happen that long ago. And earlier, you were talking about it in reference to it being a good option, for example, for those genetics that don't maybe have the potential to be a six-star. What are some of the downsides you see to rosin? Well, definitely anytime you're adding heat to resin, you're, it's going to change. But, uh, but again, you know, sometimes, you know, if either you're going to take a, a dab of four-star and have some residue, or and you may be amazing flavor, but uh, maybe rosin that and you can get a, a lot cleaner dab that tastes about 90% as good. So I got the amount of like two star and three star hash back in the day that we more or less threw away because no one wanted it. Yeah, there's a lot of it. That's all I'm going to say. And so to be able to turn that into something like rosin that people actually want to smoke is, is pretty awesome. Do you feel that rosin has made people shy away from trying to attain six star, even if they do intend to make it rosin. Yeah, totally. Cause you know, what's the point, you know, if you're just going to squish it anyways, 
But at the same time, probably the best dab that I can remember taking, which I don't take a ton of dabs these days, but it was the it was pink lemonade six star from Pacific Northwest Roots, and it was just incredible the flavor profile. And then I think I, I just tried some rosin of that with some gorilla glue. It was still it was still good, but it just was not the same experience at all. Do you feel like some hashes present themselves in a more favorable form through rosin and vice versa? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, dabbing like a four or five star level of melt can be good, but you can also get some of that burned hashy type flavor from the, the plant residue. Whereas a nice clean rosin dab can be pretty awesome most of the times. There's nothing that's going to be too wrong with the rosin dab either. It's, it's maybe a little bit mild on flavor or something like that, but generally it's going to be good unless it's flower rosin. And so, unless you know, a strain, that's going to, a strain that's going to produce lower quality melt but have cool chirps, definitely I would say would most likely shine in rosin form. Whereas, you know, if you can get something that melts really, really well, it's probably nine out of ten times going to be better in full melt form than rosin. You know, just that little bit of plant residue, though, especially if you like to take hotter dabs, can really affect flavor. Yeah, with the melt, for sure. And I'm always kind of curious how people feel. Do you feel like smoking the raw water hash is more akin to smoking the flour versus the rosin? Or do you not find much of a difference between rosin and water hash and how it affects you? No, I definitely think water hash is more full-bodied and and stony and uh, much more similar to smoking the flower. Yeah, rosin can be a little bit more one-dimensional, but generally it's still pretty on point, you know, like whereas I feel like a lot of hydrocarbon dabs are much more one-dimensional and you get kind of like a surface level high, whereas like smoking water hash, you get like that feeling behind your forehead and you're stuck to the couch, you know, full-blown stone. So um, and I think rosin might be somewhere in between for me. But uh, yeah, it's again where if, if something's going to melt well, I'd definitely prefer to smoke it in water hash form. But, uh, you know, if it's going to be a little bit, leaving a little more residue, uh, but still it has a cool turp, you know, just squish it and it'll be fire. Well, cool, man. I appreciate you hanging out with me this long. I'll start winding it down. Yeah, no worries, man. It's been a good time. So, No, yeah, I've been having fun. I'm glad. Hopefully you have too. So you've worked with various people uh, over the years. Uh, we talked about Terpco, and I know you work at a great day. So I'm always curious for people to give their advice on working with others and what they've learned from it and what are things that, that people can be aware of before getting into relationships with people. Well, I mean, as far as like, you know, if you're going to start and run a business with someone, I, I feel like you kind of need to look at it like any other relationship you're in. And you, you really got to have a lot of respect for each other. You know, it's all that cliche stuff, you know, like you, get, you know, communication's key. If you don't communicate well, things are most likely not going to work out for you. But man, I don't know, because I, mean, I, I can't, I haven't always made the best decisions myself with, with who I've gone into business with. And I, and one th- yeah, the, the one thing I just got to say is it's basically like getting married to someone if you start a business with them. You know, a lot of times you have legally binding contracts, you're financially tied up. And, you know, if, if things don't go well, there can be a lot of stress. And you got to know how someone's going to react under stressful situations and how you're going to react in, the, in those situations. 
and know that again, that person's someone you can deal with shit, you know, and, and, and get through hard times with, you know, I had, I had some business partners that, you know, things started out great. And then, you know, a year or two later, they're, they don't pick up your phone calls and they ghost you and you're not following through on things they're supposed to do. Um, and those people, you know, it's hard to work with that. And so again, just, just knowing who you're getting into bed with is, is very important. Yeah. I think that's a pretty sound advice. Is there anything that you're excited about in the cannabis space going forward? I know we talked a little bit about maybe things stagnating a bit in some senses, but is there any particular area that excites you? Well, I, I, I see a lot, a lot of cool genetics at work right now at House of Cultivar. My boss does some breeding and he's coming up with some really cool stuff lately. So I, I still get a lot of joy out of hunting through different phenos. And, you know, maybe I don't wash everything these days, but I definitely smoke a lot of it. So just getting to experience those new terpene profiles. And, um, you know, I'm a big sucker for flavor when it comes to smoke. So, you know, sometimes you get something that smells amazing, but then you go smoke it and that flavor just doesn't translate. You know, and other times you find, find ones that just taste fucking incredible. So, um, you know, I, I still have a lot of fun pheno hunting. You know, just things are so variable in the cannabis industry too. It doesn't seem like any day is ever the same as the last. You know, I do enjoy that aspect of things as well. On another note, I'm curious if you ever did much of full spectrum or mixed spectrum with your hashes or your rosins. Yeah, I've done a lot of full spec rosin. And back in the day, we graded everything like really meticulously for hash. So that was generally never blended or mixed microns or anything like that. And if it was, it would be like, you know, maybe the first and the second wash or something like that. Yeah. With rosin, you know, obviously I like to squish things separately and then I'll choose to combine them later if I want to, or if the quality is all on point, you know, I'll mix them together. It also depends largely on like what market I'm making it for in the recreational market. Most things are full spectrum for the most part, every once in a while, you'll leave something out if it doesn't make the grade or something like that. Yeah. And that's, you know, again, just to make things work in a big indoor grow, you got to make use of what you can. So you can't just be picky and be like, this is the 90U only rosin. I mean, well, you can, but there's a, a limit to how much of that you can sell. So, And by full spectrum, just to clarify, we're talking 45 through like 150, 160? Once, yeah, generally. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, some 25 micron can be good, you know, food grade rosin, 25 microns. Great. But yeah, generally those upper micron screens. And if I'm, if I'm washing just for rosin, I'll run less screens, you know, generally just like a 160, 120, 70, and like a 25, because it's all going in the same place for the most part. One thing I don't think I've asked you about is your growing practices that those change over time. Started out growing in cocoa fiber with can of nutrients and stuck with that for a number of years. And then slowly kind of transitioned over to like the, the, you know, using like TGA subcool super soil. You know, I just really like the idea of having like water only organic style soil. Um, had some decent results with that, but it wasn't a very consistent product. So then I kind of make my own super soil mixes. There's a company up here called KIS, Keep It Simple Organics. They make a pretty good soil blend. It's a good base. Yeah. So generally, like nowadays, I run no-till, 30-gallon pots. That's my preferred method for lazy man growing. 
super low maintenance, really good quality smoke, good terpene expressions. And you're keeping that majority for flour because you were telling me you majority smoke joints. Yeah, most things go to flour. And a lot of that's just also what strains I'm growing because, you know, if it's not going to hash well, I'm not going to wash it. Right. So some things I just really like the smoke of. And so I'll grow it just to smoke the flour, especially because I don't smoke a ton of hash these days. Yeah. And I don't, you know, it's small, small grow these days. I'm curious what kind of genetics you're running. Right now I got triggerberry scone, a couple of runs crosses, and then uh, orangutan titties. That's about it right now. Tell me that sugarberry scone is actually a washer, right? Yes. So sugarberry scone, God, what is it? It's a great pie crust that I should remember, but uh, it's uh, from Canarado. And man, so it's got this like amazing fruity grape berry turbine profile. Certain rounds, it kind of comes out like a little bit more buttery, but it's literally the, the name is a perfect description of it. You know, it's, it smells like sugarberries and possibly a scone. I'm not, you know, sugarberries aren't even a thing, but I'm pretty sure that's what they'd smell like. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's like a it's a beautiful flower. Uh, it grows pretty well. It's like this lavender purple, completely coated in resin. It's like super big resin heads. You can see them from you know across the room, damn near. Super sticky. It's great. And yeah, it smokes really well. The the, the flavor translates. You smoke the flower, and then it washes in that that four and a half to to five percent range, pretty consistently. Yeah, and you know, I'm curious why you don't smoke as much hash as you used to. Mainly the ritual of, of dabbing and like Q-tipping and like all these things is just a little bit much for me. And then also I grew up smoking flour. I didn't start dabbing until I'd already smoked weed for like 10 years or something like that. So I think there's something about me and smoking flour. And I'm also a, a stick for flour that actually smokes good. I almost think that's harder to, to attain than, than getting good hash. So I'm always hunting for those those tasty buds. Yeah. It's not super common to be honest with you. I don't funny enough smoke a lot of flour anymore, but yeah, it's far and few between it seems like. So you've mentioned Kaya and Pacific Northwest roots a few times. If you had to pick three other local hash companies that you enjoy, what would they be? Man, there's this kind of new one around. Maybe they've been around for a minute, but uh, Fugu, uh, they seem to be doing some good work. You know, there's a, a number of other people, but like extracted labs up here, not known for solventless, but they've been pumping out some fire. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know. I don't ever go to rec stores. So my, my knowledge of who's out there is pretty, pretty slim to begin with. But no, that's cool. I'm, I'm always interested to see who the local people are seeing good work. Oh, what is it? It's like Premier or something like that. They had some fire too the other day. I'm curious, do you see a lot of, you mentioned one of them, is it known for solventless? Do you see a lot of people that were primarily solvent-based companies transitioning to solventless or at least partially? No, actually, I, I think most hydrocarbon companies would arguably make less money running solventless products in Washington. Just because you're going to get lower yields, your throughputs, you got a higher throughput with a hydrocarbon system. You're less worried about what genetics are going to run well and what aren't. You know, you got to be pretty picky when you're choosing hash strains. But extracted, that's all they do is extract. So they're a processor only. And they make really good hydrocarbon. They've been doing it for years. Yeah, and they just wanted to get in the solventless game. So they did. 
and they, they're, you know, their quality standards and the people running the show over there, like they know resin well enough that, you know, transitioning to the solvent list market was, I think, pretty seamless for them. Cool. Well, final question, man, if you could hear from somebody on the podcast that hasn't been on, who would it be? That's a good question. I probably don't know everyone who's been on the podcast, but who, I mean, honestly, like the, the folks up at Danks are, they, they do, I mean, they make great hash. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, if you, if you haven't had Voodoo on yet, you should definitely have Voodoo on. So he's a, just a great guy in general. Good guy to talk to. Loves hash. Makes good hash. Cool. I appreciate that, man. Well, Brian, again, I really appreciate you hanging out with me, talking with me multiple times, you know, coming up to this and then taking the time to do it today. So, yeah, I'm really thankful. And I just am curious if you have anything to say before we sign off. Man, uh, I, not a whole lot, man. I do want to thank you for the opportunity to, to sit down and talk with you. You know, I'm a big fan of what you do. And uh, you know, I think you're really adding some depth to the, the solventless culture. And I appreciate you doing that, and, you know, spread knowledge around. I think it's, it's really important. So, um, yeah, just again, thanks a bunch, man. So it's a pleasure being here. It's good to talk about hash. I don't do it nearly as much as I, as I should. So. Oh man. No. Yeah. It was a pleasure having you and, and everybody who stayed with us this long, we appreciate you and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you'd like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.